0: Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, Lead Pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. Dislocated a body part. Anybody here ever dislocated a body part—a shoulder, a knee, a, 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 you know, maybe a finger or a toe or something? If any of you have been through that kind of dislocation, um, you'll know exactly how painful a dislocation can be and how how strange it can feel when something is dislocated when a member of your body has been dislocated. And I remember dislocating my shoulder, my right shoulder, while playing a rugby match down in KZN. Uh, when I was younger, and, and, uh, and, and what happened is, is that I was, I was going in to make a tackle, but the guy that was running was running a line just kind of outside of me, and I ended up having to make up some space in order to make the tackle, and so what I did is I dove out towards my right, putting my, kind of putting my arm out to stop him, and the angle and the pace that he ran at as he hit my arm was enough to just run my arm straight out of its socket. So um, the moment I went down in the tackle, I could feel something's wrong. This doesn't feel right anymore. It's not moving the way it's supposed to be moving. It's not experiencing the freedom of movement that it normally would have or the range of motion. And I knew that something's wrong. It's, 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 it's Besides for the obvious pain, it feels strange when something's dislocated. It feels strange. It, it, it feels like it's not where it's supposed to be. And in this game, I somehow managed to get my shoulder back into place by kind of pulling down on it um, and moving it around a little bit. And I I felt it pop back into place. And I finished playing the game. I thought maybe it was just kind of a slight dislocation and hadn't done a lot of damage. Um, And so it felt okay until after the match. All of us, uh, all of the rugby guys after the game jumped into the school swimming pool that was there to kind of cool down. We were gonna get straight onto the team bus and head back home after the game. And, And so I jumped into the pool and actually all my teammates got out before me and were on their way to the change room and I was still in the pool. And in that cold water you know, my, my arm just froze up in a moment. Just all the damage that had been done that I hadn't realized, it was still warm before, but in a moment, I couldn't move this arm and I, and I couldn't actually get out of the swimming pool. I actually had to call somebody to come and help me get out because I found myself in a place where my, my arm was completely immobile at that time. I, I just couldn't move it at all. And if you've ever experienced an injury like this, you'll know that it's actually a great analogy for life. Dislocation, displacement, transition, change, injury, pain. These are things that all of us have faced. In fact, it's part of life. It's part of growing up. It's part of, of how we all become, you know, who we're meant to be. It's it's part of the journey that we're on. One thing that you learn early on in life is that change is constant change is constant. As soon as you think that you've arrived, as soon as you think everything is okay, as soon as you think I've got it settled now, I understand life, I know how to live life, I know how to do this, the next change comes. The next season begins. The next challenge is at your doorstep. And all of a sudden, we face this new transition one more time, and we feel like we're relearning everything from scratch again. Has anybody ever experienced this? Like, I know life I'm great at life. I know how to do this. Here's your next step. Okay, I know nothing. You realize you know nothing in that moment. And this is always, almost always a painful process. As we've been journeying through the book of Jeremiah, we've seen this progression, and we've seen warnings, and we've seen God speak to the nation of Israel through Jeremiah, and he was warning that there's a transition coming. God was speaking to them about a time that wouldn't necessarily be a a fun time for Israel. It would be something challenging, something difficult, um, but something that, that, you know, God promised He would bring them through. We arrive at this place in the book of Jeremiah today where God allows just such a displacement and just such a dislocation for the people of Israel, the people that lived at that time. We mentioned last week that In the the progression of the story, Babylon, who was one of the great empires at the time, in fact, there there were two main empires battling for supremacy in the world at the time that the book of Jeremiah was written. It was the empire of Egypt, the nation of Egypt, and the nation of Babylon, and how they progressed and how they uh, took over nations and countries, and here we have, uh, in this race for supremacy, The armies of Babylon arrive in Jerusalem in 587 BC, and there's really no match for them. There's really no match for their armies. There's really no match for the power of this empire as they arrive. And we saw last week how people are running to and fro in Jerusalem, um, panicked because they are dangerously vulnerable, wondering what would happen to them and all of a sudden, you know, they thought life was organized. Life, they, they had their ways. They've just been through a great reform in Israel. They feel like things are going well. The economy is on the up. Things are, are looking good. And all of a sudden, the enemy arrives. Babylon is at the doorstep. And their worst fears are re- realized when Babylon takes much of the people of Israel into captivity. They uproot them from the place that they were born the home that they were given as the promise of God, the land that they lived in, the place that they grew up, where their identity was formed. And Babylon, the Babylonians, they take most of the people of Israel and march them thousands of kilometers or 1,000 kilometers to be exact, like a 1,200, just so you know, 700 miles, um, across the desert to the land of Babylon. And here they are, strangers in a strange land, forced to live in a place that they don't recognize, a place where the landscape is oddly flat and featureless in contrast to the hills and the valleys of Jerusalem. The language is incomprehensible. The customs are strange. The weather is different. The faces are unrecognizable and unrecognizing. They're strangers in a strange land. Maybe this is something that you felt in your life, and I want to encourage you with a message entitled Strangers in a Strange Land this morning. The question is, what would God say to people living in exile? What would God say to people that are living in a land that is not their home, that are dislocated, that are displaced, that that, that feel like they don't fit in? What would God say to all the exiles, the strangers in the strange land, In one sense, all of life for us is a series of exiles. If you think about how comfortable a baby is in the womb, in that quiet darkness, you know, just surrounded, protected, just in that, you know, this is why people still, when they experience traumatic events, often want to lie down in a corner somewhere in the fetal position because it reminds them of some sense of safety. And just when that baby is feeling like, man, this womb thing is amazing, like I love this place, it's quiet, you know, it's, it, it's, it's dark, I can be by myself. The next thing, you're exiled from the womb into this, this loud, bright room that's, that's got all these people standing around, the harsh environment of a hospital, you're exiled from the womb, it's how we begin life. And then we find our space and we, we find our comfort in our homes with our parents and And uh, we love being at home. We have our room. We have our familiar sights and our familiar sounds. Until at a certain age, early on, we're exiled from the comfort of home into the harsh reality of school and teachers and other people. You know, all the introverts, can I have an amen this morning? Like other people around you all the time, the demanding world of school. And just when you feel like you've managed to get a handle on school life, you're exiled into the world of work. And when you were in school, you were saying, oh, I wish I could just finish school. I can't wait to finish school. And then when you have your first week of work, you're like, can I please go back to school? And then you're in, you're in the, the workplace and in careers and there's shifts and there's challenges and there's, there's, there's moving from one office to the next, one company to the next. And in that journey, we're often exiled from our hometowns and, and we move to new cities and new countries and new companies and new places. Life is a series of Exiles. There's changes in society, changes in government, changes in values, changes in the economy, in our bodies, in our families, in our emotions, in our marriages. We barely get used to one set of circumstances before we're forced to face a brand new set. To be in exile means to be away from home. It means to be away from everything that makes up home for us. The familiar sights and sounds, the things we're comfortable with, the people we love being with. And this experience is terrifying and traumatizing. So much of the sense of who we are is determined by the place that we're in and the people that we're with. And when that changes, often violently and abruptly, we end up asking the question, who are we? Who am I in this new season? When I was younger, when I was 21 years old, I started working for a church, and that church became my family, became my home. I led a youth ministry, and I, and I had hundreds of young people. I had a team of 70 young adult leaders that were my personal friends, and I served with them for seven or eight years in this church, building this incredible community in this group, and then there came a time when, when I moved to a new church, and I remember feeling like I had my heart broken by my first girlfriend. I just, this just didn't feel right. And I'd gone from the office that I worked in and the people that I saw every day to sitting in this strange open plan office where everything felt different. And it was overwhelming, even though at that time I was sitting next to Will. I didn't know Will at the time. He wasn't my best friend yet at that time. He was just somebody that I didn't know. And I remember there was kind of like a screen up, and I saw people going around that screen. It was like my first day in the office. And I, and I wondered, I wonder what's behind that screen. I see people keep going there. But I didn't want to get up in front of everybody and go like, even though it seems so silly now. I didn't want to walk around and go, "Oh, it's the coffee station," and I should have known, because they went in behind there without coffee and they came out with coffee. I should have known. But I felt displaced. I felt dislocated. And at least once a day for that first week or two, I would take some time out from sitting behind my desk and go to one of the kids' classes. And I would just sit down there in the corner by myself. Nobody knew I was there. Such a sad picture. (laughs) Just to be able to figure out who am I in this new space? Who am I here? What's left of me? Because I'd found so much of my identity in where I was before. Strangers in a strange land. We often are, as people, where we don't want to be. We're often forced to be where we don't want to be. And in that space, everything feels out of joint. And this is hard for us. When I got back to Joburg on the team bus, I went straight to go see a doctor. By that point, my arm was in a sling and I I couldn't move it at all. And I went to go and see the doctor. And the doctor confirmed that my arm had gone back into its socket, that it had been replaced or that it moved back into the place it was supposed to be. But the process of dislocation had done damage Ligaments had been stretched in the process. Muscles had been torn. Emotions, sorry, not emotions, emotions as well, but cartilage had been scraped in this process. And I was unable to function as freely as I did before. And that's exactly what life can feel like. The transition stretches us. It often tears some things. It scrapes at our emotions and our sense of self. What does God say to strangers in a strange land? Is there a chance this morning, is there a chance that God could use the difficult process of dislocation and transition in order to open up new realities to us? Could God use moments like that? Could He be present in moments like that? Could He speak to us in moments like that? In the midst of the pain and the sense of alienation, Could we experience a sense of freedom, a sense of hope? One thing that you learn the longer you live is that denying the reality of what you're going through really doesn't help us at all. It really isn't helpful to go, no, 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 I'm fine. And we see this in the book of Jeremiah. It's one of the reasons why people didn't like Jeremiah because everybody was going, we're fine. Everything's fine. I'm fine. You're fine. We're all fine. Everything's good. And so much of our world stands on this, some sort of self help philosophy that says, just convince yourself everything's fine and you'll be fine. Have you ever heard this? Just be positive. The power of your mind. Be positive, right? That's like me telling you, just be positive that it's not gonna rain today. How many of you know? It's not going to mean, because you're positive about the fact that it's not going to rain, that somehow the clouds are going to go, you know what, those people are positive this morning, we're out of here, right? Positivity doesn't change the weather. Yes, it helps how we deal with that, and we're not saying positivity is a negative thing. But it can be a deceitful thing as long as you're denying what you're actually going through. So we're not just here to say, hey, just be positive, everything's looking great. We're not here to say, deny the problems that you have the emotions that you're experiencing, the pain that you may have in your heart right now. We believe that it is entirely possible through a relationship with God to be honest about your problems and still be filled with a sense of hope because God is present with you in the midst of your problems. That's what Jeremiah understood. So he was honest. He said, God, this sucks. I hate this. This is not what I want. This is not how I thought it was going to turn out. At one point, he outright is angry with God, and he says, you're nothing, God. You're, you're, you're a mirage. You promised that you were going to fulfill me, and here I am. I arrive at this what's supposed to be an oasis, and instead, nothing. He was angry. We've all had those moments. We don't have to lie about them. We don't have to pretend about what we're going through and pretend like it doesn't exist This kind of thinking has even developed within some Christian circles, and you may have even heard some pastors kind of preach this kind of message that employs this approach, approach, sometimes without realizing. It's a false theology that develops. And they seem to posit that faith means pretending that, that hardship, that the exile, that the pain, that what you're feeling somehow doesn't exist. And as long as you're doing that, then you've got faith. I've met some people that I can see that they are that they're physically sick. Like they just have flu or whatever. And I'm like, oh, Shami, you're sick. No, I'm not sick. I'm healed in Jesus' name. Stop being weird. You're sick. You're <laughs> coughing on me. You don't have to pretend like you're not sick in order to trust that God can heal you. We believe God can heal you and wants to heal you. But you are allowed to say, I'm sick. And people have developed this very weird theology where they say, no, if you just proclaim the truth of my healing, then it will somehow come. But if you say the wrong word, if you accidentally go, oh, I'm feeling sick this morning, that's it. That word that you just spoke is more powerful than the blood of Jesus and everything he did on the cross. So sorry, now you're going to be sick. It's not an honest theology. It's denial, and it's not what Jesus did when he lived, when Jesus was on earth. He operated by the truth. This is, what he, this is how he related. He, he didn't deny the real issues that people had. He sympathized. He wept. He counseled. But he also pointed them to the reality of a loving God who was involved and could do the miraculous. The Bible says that God is close to the brokenhearted, He cares, He's compassionate. Denying that your problems exist is not faith, it's denial, it's it's not it's not trust, it's fear, it's it's not courage, it's cowardice. We've got to be able to be honest about our situation and then trust in the miracle working power of God. Jesus did this because he operated in the truth. But people often find themselves, you know, in order to encourage them in this kind of problem denying space, they 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 find themselves prophets and preachers that will share these messages with them, these promises of a quick fix, get rich, one-stop solution. And we kind of do this within a smorgasbord of different counselors, like everybody from like Oprah to Dr. Phil to, I don't know, Dr. Oz, to any other doctor, to Ellen, to, oh, and then T.D. Jakes, and this pastor and that pastor. And we take it all on board and we go, oh, just this positive thing that we're building. And we think, if I I can listen to all these people, it will give me a quick fix. I don't have to go through the journey. I don't have to be faithful to the process. I don't have to actually trust in a relationship with Jesus. I can just fix this quickly without a journey, without a process. Israel, when they were in exile, they were exactly like us. We often think that they're so far removed. But what we find out as we go through the Scriptures is that people are pretty much people, no matter what era or age they lived in. And so the people of Israel, they do exactly the same. When the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, the first thing to know is they didn't take everyone. So they actually left some people behind. They actually left some people behind in Jerusalem, but they took the cream of the crop. They took the best leaders, the best artisans, the best uh, political leaders and religious leaders and and, uh, the most talented people, the best businessmen, merchants, And they removed all of those people of influence, all of the people of leadership, leaving the rest of the people behind without leaders, causing them to become submissive to the invaders. There was nobody to rally the cause against Babylon. Interestingly enough, though, Jeremiah gets left behind because he was not important to the king. The king had said he's not allowed to speak in public. He was not allowed to be seen. He was not allowed to have influence over people. They didn't like him. And for years, Jeremiah complained about this. Have you ever been through those moments in life when you complain about something and complain about something and complain about something? Until one day, you look back and you go, oh my gosh, God, I kept asking you to change that thing, but actually what you were doing is you were protecting me. And if I could go back now, I wouldn't change a single thing because this is why this happened. And so Jeremiah's like, God, why does everybody hate me? Why am I being thrown in prison? Why am I being locked in the stocks and humiliated? I'm doing what you called me to do and everybody hates me. Why am I being thrown into a cistern and forgotten and left to die? Oh, here comes Babylon. Oh, I'm being left behind. Oh, because nobody liked me. <laughs> and all of a sudden, Jeremiah is like, God has a plan. He always has a plan. Even when you feel like, why is this happening? God is going to use what's happening. In the end, at the end of it all, working it together for good, for you, and for all who are called according to his purpose. Now I get it, God. So all the influencers and the leaders of Israel are sitting 700 miles from home in a foreign land. And they declare what God had prophesied through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 5. They start saying, a terrible thing has happened to us. This is unfair. God said exactly that that's what they'll say. And they say it. This is terrible. This is unfair. Why are we removed from our homeland? Why has God allowed us? Like, yes, we made some mistakes, but surely we're not as bad as the other nations. Why would God allow us to go through this? What is God going to say? What will God say to strangers living in a strange land? The religious leaders that were with them become exactly the kind of preachers that so many people look for today. And In fact, the book of uh, 2 Timothy speaks about the kind of preachers that people want. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, it says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. In other words, they don't really want to listen to the truth, but wanting to have their ears tickled, which is such an interesting thing. I don't know if anyone's ever tickled your ear. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires. In other words, people don't really want to surrender and submit their lives to the truth of God's Word, to the truth of who we are and who we're called to be. Instead, they find preachers that will tickle their ears and tell them nice things. No, you're fine. We're fine. Everybody's fine. This is what Jerusalem does. They don't want to be in exile. So they find preachers that tell them that God has given us a dream. We've had a dream. We've had a dream, they declare. This is all unfair, and God recognizes that it's unfair, and He immediately wants to rescue you and take you out of exile return you back to Jerusalem. Don't worry, everybody. God's about to get you out. Maybe you're in a season of transition right now and all you've been praying is, God, take me out. Get me out of here. Change the season. Transition the season. I don't want this. And it's easy to find a preacher that will say, yes, tomorrow you're out of this season. Tomorrow it's all gonna be over. Tomorrow it's all gonna be fine. But God actually shares a greater truth with us than that. And the truth is is that God is not necessarily going to change your circumstance overnight, but He will be present with you in the midst of it. That He doesn't necessarily take you out of the storm, but He does walk with you through the storm. That He does show you His faithfulness in the midst of the storm. That He does reveal a reality to you. We're not here to create a religion where we are at the center where everything we feel or need or want, God must just give it to us. Give it to me, God. Why haven't you done that yet, God? Okay, I'm not going to church because you didn't give me that thing I asked for. Look, that's, that's when we're at the center. But what God is wanting to do is lead us into something deeper where we begin to trust in his love for us. Eugene Peterson says, false dreams. And I'm not saying big dreams. I'm saying false dreams interfere with honest living? Where are you at right now? Can you be honest about it rather than just wanting to be in your next season? How many of you have heard, I mean, there's an old quote. I remember a teacher in my school had it on a poster on her cupboard door that said, life is what happens while we're making other plans. How many of you have been so busy planning the next season of your life that you've forgotten to be present in your current season? That you've forgotten to trust God in the midst of what you're going through right now? For Israel in exile, as long as they believed the false prophecies, stating that they would be home again soon, it made no sense for them to engage in committed, faithful work in Babylon. How could you do faithful work in Babylon? How could you be committed in that city? This is not my home. Why would I contribute here? Anybody ever rented a home and something breaks? And you're like, I'm not fixing that. It's not my home. But you've been living there for 10 years. But it's not my home. I'll phone the landlord. We don't commit to places that we haven't taken ownership of. They saw no need to develop a life of richness and texture and depth while they were in exile. Since all their real relationships were back in Jerusalem, why would they commit to building friendships in Babylon? Why plant gardens or beautify their homes just to leave it all behind? Why learn to conduct business in this new city if they could just get odd jobs here and there until they left? Why commit to marriage or family if they could just have casual relationships until they got to go home and settle down in Jerusalem? What developed out of Israel was a lazy people, a people that lived hand-to-mouth, parasites on society, indifferent to the reality of their actual lives. So one day, two men arrive at the community of exiles, Two men sent by guess who? Jeremiah. And they have a letter from Jeremiah. They were actually going through to the king of Babylon and on their way to the palace. They stopped by the community of exiles and there was this buzz of excitement. There's a letter that's arrived. God has sent a word. God's going to tell us. That's it. That's it. We're going home. God is going to act. He's going to move. He's going to judge the Babylonians. He's going to pull us out of here and he's going to send us home. We're going to be back where we want to be. The exile has ended. And everybody is is standing around. There's a rumor that's circulating that Jeremiah the prophet has sent a word from God, a letter to the exiles. These two men stand in the middle of the gathering and they wave everybody silent and they start reading the letter. This is how it starts in Jeremiah 29 and verse 4. This is the message from the God of heaven's armies, the God of Israel to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and make yourselves at home. Put in gardens and eat whatever grows in that country. Marry and have children. Encourage your children to marry and have children so that you'll thrive in that country and not waste away. Make yourselves at home there and work for the country's welfare. Pray for Babylon's well-being. If things go well for Babylon... Things will go well for you. Yes, believe it or not, this is the message from the God of heaven's armies, Israel's God. Don't let all those so-called preachers and know-it-alls who are, all, who are all over the place, they take you in with their lies. Don't pay any attention to the fantasies they keep coming up with to please you. There are a bunch of liars preaching lies and claiming I sent them. I never sent them. Believe me, says the Lord. And then the scripture that how many of us have quoted? How many of us have tweeted? How many of us have Instagrammed without even knowing the context? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. We love that verse. We hate exile. The problem is that verse came in the context, in the midst of dislocation. Displacement, exile. How irritating must that message have been to the people of Israel at that time? How should we know what this feels like if we weren't there? But you have been there. You've been there in your own life. God, take this away from me. God, take me out of this. God, give me a new season. God, I don't want to be single. God, I don't want to be married. (laughs) God, I want to be a better job. God, this job is too hard. And so on we go. And sometimes God sends a word to us. And he says to us, I'm not going to take you out. Because I'm doing something in this space that you're in. Stop trying to escape the reality that you're in and instead embrace it. Build, plant, marry, pray, commit. I have plans for you. Sometimes the further we are from home, the closer we are to God. The further we are from home, the closer we are to God. I've learned a million times more in my own life about the love and the grace and the faithfulness of God in seasons of exile than in seasons of comfort. Jeremiah's letter ultimately says, quit sitting around and feeling sorry for yourselves. The aim of a person of faith is not to live as comfortably as possible, but to live as deeply and thoroughly as possible. And the only place that you have to be human is right here, right now. The only opportunity you'll ever have to live by faith is in the circumstances that you are in this very day. The house you live in, the job you've been given, the weather conditions that prevail at the moment. This may not be your favorite place, Anchor Church. I hope Anchor Church is your favorite place, but the community. This may not be your favorite season that you're in right now, but it's a place. It's as good a place as any. Why not dig some foundations? Construct something. Develop your environment. You might not enjoy the season, but you can learn what grows well in this season. Plant gardens and eat of what grows. These might not be the people you'd want to hang out with, but you cannot be the person God intends for you to be if you're separating yourself constantly from others. Why not make friends? Have meals, lean in to the community. This might not be the city that you are from, but why not work for the peace and the well-being of this city? Pray for it to see God's will being done there. Sometimes the question we need to ask ourselves is not how can I live my best life, but how can I live my best life here, right now, in this moment? if this is what it means to be human and alive, then that's what I'm going to do. And we can do this because God is not just the God of Jerusalem. He's the God of Babylon. He's not just the God of the mountaintops and the, you know, the, the exuberation of, of success. He's the God of the valley. He's the God of the difficulty. He's still God. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. He's the God in Assyria. He's the God in every place. He's the God of Joburg, and He is God with us. 2 Corinthians twelve eight, We see this in a New Testament context. Three times, Paul says, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, by God's grace, then I am strong. Philippians 4.10, he says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And here once more, another scripture that we quote without the context. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's speaking about being content no matter what you're going through. And that's the key to our hope this morning. The truth is, is that no matter how our circumstances change, God remains the same. His promise stands. He loves you. He cares for you. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. I want to tell you this morning that whatever season you're in, whatever transition you're facing, now or in the future, God is never going to leave you nor forsake you. He's never going to abandon you. When you pray, He'll hear you. When you come looking for Him, you'll find Him. Some reject this message, like those three prophets that arose. They send a letter back home to Israel. We read about it here in verse in chapter twenty-nine, verse twenty-seven. He says, "So why haven't you done anything about muzzling?" This is a letter to the high priest, muzzling Jeremiah of Anathoth, who's going around posing as a prophet. He's gone so far as to write to us in Babylon. It's going to be a long exile. So build houses and make yourselves at home, plant gardens and prepare Babylonian recipes. But most of the exiles that were there, like most of you today, they heard the word of God when it was preached. They settled down and they found out what it meant to be God's people in the place that they didn't want to be. Can you discover in your life what it means To be a child of God, to be a a person that belongs to God in the place that you don't want to be. The result was that it became the most creative period in the entire sweep of Hebrew history. They didn't lose their identity, they discovered it. They didn't lose their faith, they found it. They learned how to pray in deeper ways than ever before. They found themselves reading the scriptures again, understanding it, meditating on God's word, rediscovering the incredible riches of scripture. They learned that God was not dependent on a place or a season. And what they found was not survival, but abundant life. Not relegated to the margins of God's will, but right in the center of it. The exile. Our exile is the worst of life that brings out the best in us. It's an incredible thing. And all of us will have our moments of exile, our days, our weeks, our years, perhaps. The question is, what will we do with them? Will we complain, wish them away, escape into fantasies, drug ourselves into oblivion, or will we build? Will we plant? Will we marry? Will we, some of you are like, please Jesus, will we seek the place, the peace of the place we inhabit, and the people that we are with? Will we seek God in every moment and watch Him free us from the inside out? At the end of the day, home is right here. Home is in the secret place with God. It's in your relationship with Him. And it's in the community of faith. That's why we have a banner that we don't have up today, but usually it's out there. And it says, this is home. Because home is being in the center of God's will. And you are home in this place. Let's build. Let's plant. Let's commit. Let's marry. Let's find out what it means to be a people of God in the midst of exile. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me this morning as we pray?